0: Well, just as we did this morning, some degree of review would be appropriate. It's been some time since we've been in Ephesians, so a little bit of review concerning the letter as a whole and where we are in it. Paul writes to this church after having spent between two to three years with them. His time with them, as we understand it, was rich. He, by God's providence, was able to teach the Ephesians for many hours on a daily basis and to give to them much doctrine and much instruction for living. And then he left. It was a tearful goodbye. And he writes then this letter to them, not, it would seem, in response to some kind of problem that had arisen in the church. It's important to note that many of Paul's letters are written in response to a problem that had arisen after Paul had been with that church, but not the letter to the Ephesians. There's very little in this letter that would suggest there are issues Paul is addressing. Rather, he's reminding them. We can take the letter to the Ephesians as a representative summary, a synthesis of Paul's teaching that he gave to them in person. We see just how rich their time was together by virtue of how wonderful this letter is. Now, why would Paul need to encourage them? Why did Paul find cause to write the letter then? Maybe because of a hint, a possibility of persecution on the horizon, similar to the kind of response of the world we were thinking about this morning in Ephesus, The primary religion was that of the Artemis cult. The Artemis temple sat there in the city, and many would go to worship there daily. And as the Christians had been faithful to preach the gospel, people were being saved in that city. They were being pulled away from the Artemis cult into the church, and certainly that had caused a disturbance. Particularly, as we see in the book of Acts, those who were making their business from the Artemis cult were disgruntled by all these that were now departing and flocking to the church, and so maybe on the horizon there is a hint of trouble. And Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians to remind them of who they are and what their responsibility is in Christ's. Now, the letter divides very neatly down the middle, as many of Paul's letters do. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrine, theology, and chapters 4 through 6 are its application, that doctrine set to work. This is what you do in response. It's a very neat structure in that sense. And thus far, we've covered chapters 1, and by the end of this evening, chapter 2, You'll remember in the first chapter of the letter, Paul explains to the Ephesians by way of a lengthy opening eulogy just how rich we are in Christ. We are, spiritually speaking, the richest people on planet earth. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and for that God should be blessed, praised, worshipped. There is nothing that he has withheld from us. Every blessing that God has to give, he has given in Christ. And then in that eulogy, one verse after another, Paul unpacks the manifold riches that belong to us through Christ Jesus. He then prays, at the end of chapter 1, he prays that we would know who we are. He prays that we would understand and come to terms with who God is, the giver, and the gift that he has given. It's not that we're lacking anything, it's that we often don't know what we have. And Paul's prayer is that we would know it, we would take ownership of it, and it would affect our lives. Then Paul turns the corner into chapter 2. And he begins something of a new argument. He brings together, as it were, the individual blessings of chapter 1 and shows how in God's plan they are supposed to be working together. That is, he directs us to the church. And the church is maybe the most persistent, prevalent theme throughout all of Ephesians. There are many themes perhaps the theme, the doctrine that Paul returns to most frequently in this letter is the church, and in chapter 2, he shows us how our blessings in Christ are not to be enjoyed and savored on an individual level, but we're to live in unity with one another. In particular, and around about verse 11, Paul starts to address the specific question Of the Jew and the Gentile. Now, this is unique to first century Christianity. It's not something that is particularly an issue for us, but it would have been for the Christians then. Jew and Gentile, now brother and sister in Christ, whereas before these two groups would have had very little to do with one another, they are now co worshippers together. And so Paul here, and in other letters that he writes, addresses the Jew-Gentile issue. And over and over and over again, from many different angles, he sets forth the glory of the gospel with a particular accent on the unity that it is supposed to bring amongst believers. When we get to verse 19 through 22, Paul concludes that argument. And it's not so much that in these verses he is giving a cumulative statement. He's not here introducing, as it were, entirely new ideas that are the culmination of everything he said so far. Rather, in verses 19 through 22, we find something of a reiteration of truths already given. From a slightly different angle, but nonetheless, Paul tells us yet again That as Christians, we have been brought together into one body and that that singular truth is to be, for us, precious. Now, it's not too early to look ahead and understand why Paul is laboring this point as much as he is. Why is Paul so concerned to ensure that the Jews and the Gentiles worship Together, arm in arm, sharing their lives with one another. Why is unity in the church so important to the Apostle Paul? Because as we get to chapter 4 and following, he's going to set them to work. He's going to show them how their faith should be practiced on a daily basis. One imperative after another. The letter, as you probably know, gets very, very practical when we get to chapter 4 and following. And Paul understands that unless he has built the necessary theological foundation, the Ephesians will not adequately respond to his commands. Until Paul has given them the riches of the gospel over and over again, and by God's grace instilled those riches deep into their hearts, they will not be ready to race towards the commands that he gives in chapters 4 and following. There are passages in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 that will be very familiar to us. Some of the most well-known passages in the New Testament are found in the latter part of Ephesians. Do not let the familiarity of those passages blind you to just how weighty are the commands. Paul gives to the Christians, and by inference, in turn, they come to us tonight, weighty commands to obey in Christ. Husbands are to love their wives. How, as Christ loved the church, wives are to submit to their husbands, children are to obey their parents, slaves are to obey their masters, and we could go on and on, taken seriously, these are not easy commands to obey. This is not an easy life to live in so much as you are negligent of the grace that you have received. But when you harness the grace of the gospel as it is given in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, that is when you are ready to obey the commands of the gospel. And so one of the reasons Paul is laboring as much as he is The unity, the precious doctrine of the church, is because he is laying a foundation upon which he will issue the commands by which the Ephesians are to live. And it is exactly the same for us. We ought to be preparing our hearts for the latter portions of this letter. And that preparation looks like saturating our minds in the grace of the gospel. And particularly, according to the contours of this letter, saturating our minds in the wonders of the local church. And so may God instruct our hearts to that end this evening. His argument in these last few verses of chapter 2 can be divided into three parts. Paul explains again the fact of the Gentiles' inclusion. He then explains the nature of that inclusion and finally its benefit. There are headings this evening the fact of our inclusion, the nature of that inclusion, and lastly, the benefit of being included. Beginning with the fact of our conclusion, Paul states it in both the negative and the positive. Verse 19, So then, there's the summative phrase, trying to get his arms around all that he said so far and summarize it as he concludes this portion of the letter. So then, you, speaking directly to the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens. So that's it in the negative. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but positively, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The negative first, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Certainly, there is some degree of overlap between those two terms the stranger and the alien though they are not entirely synonymous. The stranger would have been understood as someone dwelling in a foreign land on a temporary basis, a fleeting visit, as it were, somewhat akin to our modern-day concept of a tourist. We understand the tourist doesn't live here, they don't belong here, And the salient point is that they don't enjoy the privileges of a citizen of that country. They're just here on a visit. Now, the alien is not identical. The alien has less of an emphasis on temporary visitation, more permanent, but certainly still not belonging still not enjoying the privileges of someone who lives there and is a citizen of that nation. The alien would be equivalent to someone today holding a visa. You've been permitted by the government to be here for longer than a few weeks, maybe months or even years, but you're not a citizen. You don't get to enjoy everything that the citizen does. When we first came, and for many years, on our paperwork, we were labeled in this country as resident aliens. That was our status, and we felt it. There were many times when life was not easy because we were not citizens. Every time we left the country and tried to re-enter the grizzly face immigration would remind us that we don't belong here. They would ask difficult questions to test why we really want to come back. The DMV would remind us every time they issued a driving license, it would only ever be for one year. So we knew we would back, be back in these lines 12 months from now, applying for another driving license. And every year at the time of our tax return, we were reminded we don't enjoy the same privileges as someone who is a citizen here. And Paul is saying to the Gentiles, spiritually, you once were strangers and aliens. Perhaps a Gentile one Sabbath day may have drawn close. Maybe out of curiosity, a Gentile may have looked in on the Jews worshipping But there was absolutely no sense in which they enjoyed the privileges of God's people in the Old Testament. They understood that they did not belong. They didn't have access to this God in the way that the Jews did. These were not their scriptures and they did not enjoy all the rights and privileges that would come from belonging to God's people. It is not altogether different from an unbeliever coming And being with us on a Sunday morning. I pray every week that God would bring unbelievers to be with us on a Sunday. And I would encourage you if you are in relationships, friendships, work relationships with those that don't know the Lord. Ask if they would come with you to church. And I rejoice when there are unbelievers amongst us. Who knows how God would use their time with us as they are exposed to the gospel message in many different ways. But I want to be very, very clear. If there is an unbeliever amongst us, we love that they're with us, but they do not enjoy the privileges. Of being in Christ. They are physically here. They sing with us and bow their heads with us. But they are not washed in the blood of Christ. Their sins are not forgiven. They do not have access to God. They remain cut off from Him. An enemy of Him. His wrath remains upon them. They don't enjoy the ministry of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. They're not cleansed and washed by the blood of the Lamb. They're not clothed in Christ's righteousness. They cannot approach God as their Father. And as we set our minds regularly to the blessed hope, that is not their hope. They may be with us, but they do not have the benefits of being in Christ. And Paul says to the Gentiles, that was once you. But, and that is a strong, adversative word, but there is a shift that has taken place. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So here, Paul shows the transition that has occurred by virtue of God's grace, the gospel of their salvation which has come to the Gentiles has now rendered them citizens. The emphasis with that word being on the permanence and the privilege that they now have. You are now citizens. No one can ever take that away from you. You have your card of citizenship to God's people and that will never, ever, ever be taken away. And you enjoy all of the privileges that come with being found in Christ. They are now all yours without exception. Think back to chapter 1. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is absolutely true for the Jews and the Gentiles whom Paul is addressing. But notice he doesn't stop there. Paul actually brings together different metaphors. He combines metaphors in verse 19. You are fellow citizens, which appeals to this sense of belonging to a land, a nation, with the saints and the members of the household of God. And there's a family metaphor. He employs the family metaphor and labors their co-citizenship, so as to place a particular accent on the fact that they are not in Christ in isolation. This is one of Paul's emphases throughout chapter 2. You are citizens with others. You're citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You are citizens of a family. As you think of your citizenship. I don't imagine that you do so with the emphasis being on those with whom you are a co-citizen. We tend to isolate that notion simply to the nation to which we belong. Paul tries to place the emphasis elsewhere, namely on those that you're citizens with. You are with the saints and the members of the household of God. He wants to show them that their privileges and their permanency is to be enjoyed with others. And so, one of the many implications that would flow out from this singular truth is simply to note how precious time is with God's people. To stand back and to think afresh upon the reality of once being excluded, not having a part with God's people, and now by His grace being included with the saints and the members of the household of God to prize time with God's people. Any time you spend with other believers is precious because you are co-citizens with them. Any time that you spend with other brothers and sisters in Christ is some of the most precious time in your week. I pray that you are much in the business of opening up your home and welcoming in other Christians of seeking to live your lives, especially with the other members of this church, that that would be a practice in your home, bringing in other believers and prizing that time. Prizing it because it is to be understood as precious. When I was in the military, there was a Christian fellowship that had been in existence for many, many years for believers in the Navy, and so I joined very early on, knowing that Christian fellowship was going to be very important for me in the years to come, and every year, one thing that they would send out to the members of the Christian fellowship was an address list, and it had the address of every member of the fellowship all around the world. And there were believers on that list from many, many countries living far and wide. And the idea was that as we traveled and as we ended up in foreign ports, we would keep this list with us and we would not hesitate in a foreign country with no knowledge of this person besides their name to call them and to say, I'm here. I'm in this country and I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus, just like you are. And many, many times, people would be connected through this list and strangers would be welcomed into homes in faraway countries on the basis that we were fellow citizens. When fellowship is taken away from you, you understand just how precious it really is. We should, as we think about verse 19, prize our time with other believers. That is the fact of our inclusion. Paul then moves on in verse 20 to the nature. The nature of our conclusion, inclusion, he says you've been brought into this household. And then he explains a little bit about the nature of the household. Verse 20, it is built... On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, not the capstone, not the final block, but the central block without which it would all crumble. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So Paul is showing and reminding the Christians in Ephesus that the church into which they have been brought is not without a plan. This organization didn't just arise out of nowhere. It's not that there isn't an architect overseeing it. But it has been carefully designed. And the design is one wherein the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Now there is an interpretive issue that surrounds those few words, Namely, to whom is Paul referring as he speaks of the apostles and the prophets? As you can imagine, many have suggested that he is appealing to the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, and therefore drawing attention to the church and its place within redemptive history. The church is the outworking of God's plan through redemptive history, the prophets preached, they moved God's plan forward. The apostles preached. And now we have the church. They are our foundation. The only problem with that particular view is the order of the names. This is where the details of Scripture matter. Scripture is inerrant. The details can make a difference. It is not insignificant that Paul lists these two groups out of chronological order, at least out of chronological order if indeed he's referring to Old Testament prophets. He lists first the apostles, then the prophets. Most likely, he's not actually referring to the likes of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. When he says prophets, Paul probably has in mind here the New Testament prophets, Now prophecy was a gift that was still active at the time of Pentecost and around the birth of the church. Paul speaks about it as he writes to the Corinthians, it is no longer a gift for today, prophecy is not a gift that we should seek after, but it was a gift given at the time of the birth of the church. And so, by listing the apostles and then the prophets, Paul is not so much drawing attention to the flow of redemptive history from old to new, and the church's place within that, as much as he seems to be focusing our attention on the events around Pentecost. That is, the birth of the church the supernatural birth of the church. It was the apostles' preaching and the prophets' preaching in that era that established the church. As an aside, that's why prophecy was a gift active at that time. It functioned as a validation of the apostles' ministry, a declaration that this was indeed the work of God and the church was His chosen vehicle, after the church had been established, it was no longer needed. And so Paul is drawing attention to that era, that wonderful time in redemptive history that we read about in the book of Acts. And one of the most edifying things you can do with the book of Acts is to sit down and read it in its entirety from beginning to end and simply take in, One chapter after another, the rich and frequent preaching of these men that always centered upon Christ. The apostles preached the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and showed its implications for all that would submit to Him in faith. And that preaching is what gave birth to the church. And as you read those sermons, one chapter after another, nestled in between those sermons are the frequent comments from Luke that the disciples gave themselves. They devoted themselves to coming together, breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to prayer and to fellowship and to communion and submitting to the Word of God. It is such a simple formula, but it is the formula that God used to turn the world upside down. The church was established on the simple practices of the saints that have been the practices of the saints ever since. And so, as I've said before, and I will say many times after, your membership to the church is the most valuable membership you could ever have. Your belonging to the church is the most precious membership card you will ever possess. You can spend much money belonging to a club that is exclusive. You can spend much time getting access into a group that shuts other people out. None of them are so precious as your membership to the local church. And your access to it and your membership comes only by the blood of Christ. It doesn't come by any other means. You are here this evening belonging to the church because Christ died for your sins. And Paul wants the Ephesians to be reminded of that reality. You see the implication, if verse 19 prompts us to think about just how precious time with God's people is, Verse 20 prompts us to think about how precious time specifically in the church is. We can enjoy many, many expressions of fellowship with other believers throughout the week and they are rich and we are to praise God for them. They are all secondary to our time together on a Sunday. To come together specifically as the church is a special gathering. To come together as the church so as to sing praises together. So as to bow our heads and with one spirit pray together. So as to submit together to the preaching of His Word. So as to come together around the Lord's table. So as to witness together baptisms. Those things that only the church does. It is not that as believers gather in homes, we practice the same things we practice on a Sunday. Those are rich times of fellowship, but those are not the church. I've lost count of just how many times I have heard Christians put forward an argument for going about their faith through Only informal gatherings of believers. As if those informal gatherings, as rich and as precious as they are, are a substitute for worship with God's people on the Lord's Day. And they are so misinformed, they have not read Ephesians 2 to see the priority of the church. The gathering of the church on the Lord's Day is to be the most precious time in the week. You don't forsake it for anything else. You come here because you understand just how special it is to be with God's people this one time in the week. I often wonder at God's design why He didn't ordain that we would come together more but I know that he has ordained that on a Sunday we would be found in the church. His plan is that on the Lord's day, the Lord's people would be together. And that is to be to us a special, special time. Well, from there, Paul explains the benefit. In verse 21, he goes on from the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, and he says, in whom, that is Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. The church is a living organism. It's a living organization. It is never static. Please understand this. The local church that is faithful submits to the word. The local church is never, ever static. We come here every Sunday and there is a sense in which we go through the motions, we do the same things, and rightly so. I pray that we wouldn't be captivated by novel ideas, but 50 years from now we would still be doing the same things on a Sunday. And it can be that as we keep doing the same things that we find commanded in Scripture, we lose sight of the work that the Lord is doing we could grow complacent. We could start to believe that not much is happening on a Sunday. There's not a whole lot going on. The Bible tells us differently. In so much as we are faithful to submit ourselves to God's word, the church is never static. God is always active. Specifically, Paul tells us, He is growing us into a holy temple. We are being built together. God is forging a glorious temple, which is His dwelling place. If I was to ask you this evening, why do you come to church? I wonder what your response would have been. We don't come merely because this is a pleasing place to be. We don't come to church merely because there is encouragement to be found here. We don't come merely because it is edifying to sing and to study God's word and to pray. All of those things are true and good. We come to church because this is where God dwells. This is God's... Chosen dwelling place. He is pleased to be here. God dwells inside every individual believer by the Holy Spirit, certainly. But as we come together, Ephesians 2 hints at a particular dwelling of God amongst his people when they worship together. Now just think about what an encouragement that simple truth would have been for the Ephesians to receive. They're most likely still meeting in that upper hall that we read about in the book of Acts as Paul taught them. They are most likely still there and outside in the streets undoubtedly they can hear the noise of the Artemis cult. The many that are going to that temple one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, do not think that the Artemis cult was a small thing in Ephesus. And certainly, as they had lost their leader, as the Holy Spirit had moved Paul on through many tears, they would be feeling the pressure. A small group of Christians relative to the many pagan worshippers. And Paul writes and says, don't worry about that temple. Because it means absolutely nothing. In the grand scheme of things, in God's view, that temple is absolutely nothing. You are the holy temple, which is the dwelling place of God. How encouraging it is to remind ourselves independent of any comments about size, status. He doesn't talk about any significant events needing to happen. He simply states as a fact that as they come together, God is growing them. He is building them into a holy temple which is the dwelling place of God. And for one that knew the Scriptures... How wonderful and glorious is this truth as you see it within the scope of redemptive history. God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. They forsook the privilege as they sinned. He banished them, but He was not done with them. And so in due time, He dwelt amongst them in the tabernacle. And then as redemptive history moved forward, that dwelling became more permanent in the temple The Old Testament temple, the Spirit of God was found. The people again disobeyed and went into exile. And now in this era, Paul picks up on that temple theology and says, and now it's the church. This is it. This is God's vehicle that he is using and working through. God dwells amongst you. And he tells them this because he wants for them to be found faithful. Paul wants for them to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. That's how he's going to begin chapter 4. Urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. One command after another, weighty and serious. It is no trivial thing to live out the Christian life. As we thought about this morning, it will bring persecution. So how will these Ephesians respond? How is it that Paul can ensure as he gives the commands, they race towards them? They find them to be light and joyful. They love to obey and they love to deny themselves and cut off the flesh so as to live a life that honors the Lord. How? You build a strong foundation. You tell them early the privilege of being involved in the church the fact of their inclusion, the nature and the blessing of them having been brought in. You remind them of profound truths of which they already knew, not least that God dwells amongst you. And as by His grace we take in again that reality We trust that He prepares our hearts to obey Him. May that be true for all of us here this evening. Let's pray now in response. Father, again we praise You for the doctrine of the church this evening. As we see it in these few verses at the end of Ephesians 2, we are in awe as we think of the reality. Once we were aliens and strangers, but now we're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. We enjoy a permanence, all of the rich privileges of being in Christ, and we do so. With one another. Not in isolation from one another, but we have been brought in now living lives with one another in the church. Would you teach our hearts to consider time, any time, with other believers as precious? Would you teach our hearts to esteem rightly the church? That special time, especially that we enjoy on a Sunday. Above all things, may we prize times of worship together on the Lord's Day. And we see and we only wonder at the work that your Spirit is accomplishing amongst us every time we gather. You are building us together into a holy temple. You are sanctifying us. Individually and collectively, you are shaping us to be the people you want us to be. And as your grace works itself out in our lives, you are pleased to dwell amongst us. We can barely take it in. This is the dwelling place of the Holy God. You are amongst us. And for that privilege, we praise you. Father, please embed these doctrines into our hearts. Not least so that we would be ready to respond to our responsibilities. May we respond with joy to all of the commands that you give to us. Because we understand who we are and what the church is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.